0: The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 29, but we're going to begin by reading the first two verses of chapter 28, which you may remember we skipped last week. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel, and Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. So David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Now at chapter 29, Then the Philistines gathered together, all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him, and do not let him go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary." For with what could he reconcile himself to his master if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sang together in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, But what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant, as long as I have been with you, that I may not go down and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now therefore, arise. Early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you, and as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning and to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This time we'll call the kids down to the front for their children's sermon. Well, the story that we read this morning teaches us about God's love for his children. Let's go over what happened. David was living with God's enemies. He had gone to Gath, the city that Goliath was from, to hide from Saul. David wasn't being faithful to God. He wasn't trusting in God's word. So he began to make friends with God's enemies. David had to pretend, as we learned before, to like he wasn't a Christian so that he could be friends with people who weren't Christians. And during this time that David lived with God's enemies, he was constantly lying so he could still be their friend. He would go out and fight against other nations who were God's enemies, but when the king of Gath asked him what he had been doing, he lied, and he said that he was fighting Saul's army. He was acting like a person who didn't believe in God so he could be friends with God's enemies. I'm sure your parents, I know your parents, have warned you that if you lie, you end up lying even more to cover up that lie. And this is the mess that David got himself into. I'm sure your parents have also warned you, just like I have, to be careful about who you are friends with. Many young kids have gotten into a lot of trouble because of who their friends were. And I'll give you an example you can understand. Imagine that you start hanging around with the kids that are always getting into trouble. At first, it's kind of exciting because they don't follow the rules you do. But soon, you're going to get into a situation and you didn't realize would happen. So maybe they, go, they decide they're going to go throw bricks at a building and break the windows. If you do this, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You didn't really want to do anything like this. You just wanted to hang out with the exciting friends. But if you don't break some windows, Your new friends are going to tease you and call you names like wimp or sissy and the worst part is there's no way you can get out either way you lose well imagine that that building is owned by your uncle and some of the kids know that and so they say look we don't want you coming with us because because if we get caught you're going to tell or or, if you get caught you're going to tell your uncle that it was us we don't want you here go home you'd probably be happy actually because you didn't have to do anything bad and since they sent you home, maybe you can just stop hanging around with them from now on. And boy, you could be really thankful to God that He saved you from that mess. It was your fault that you got into that mess. You didn't listen to your parents when they told you that those kids were a bad influence and you shouldn't hang around with them. Your disobedience got you into that mess. And if God gets you out of it, it's only because God is good to His children, not because you're good. If you were good, you wouldn't have gotten into that mess. Mess in the first place. And that is exactly what happened in our story. The Philistines were going to war against Israel. Now, the Philistine army was really five armies. And the leader of Gath liked David, but the four other leaders remembered who David was. He killed our hero Goliath. So they didn't trust him and they didn't want him going with them. He wanted them, he wanted. They wanted him to leave. David was this close to going to war with God's enemies against God's church. And if he had done that, he could never become king. Israel would never accept a man as king who had fought and killed some of his own people. But David was stuck, and it was his fault. He had sinned terribly by making friends with God's enemies. And even though he may have thought it was okay because he was hiding from Saul, it was a very wicked sin. And there was no way out. But right at the last minute, when it was almost too late, God saved David by making the Philistines distrust him. And that story shows us that even though God lets his children get into trouble sometimes... He saves us because He loves us. And the trouble that He lets us get into is often His way of warning us about how dangerous and destructive sin is. Now, we'll talk more about this in the rest of the sermon, and I want you to pay close attention. We're going to pray now, and then you can return to your seat. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now by thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and of life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all. Through the knowledge of Thee and of Jesus our Lord, for His name's sake. Amen. Our reading began with 28, 1 and 2, because the rest of chapter 28 is a parenthesis in the story. David is with Achish and Gath, and the Philistines have assembled all five of their armies to fight Israel. Then the narrative cuts away to tell us about Saul and the witch of Endor. And now we come back to David among the Philistines. Last week I said that chapters 27 and 28 are kind of like parallels. In both chapters we find the main character having recourse to forbidden means. We find two men trapped in terrible sin. And this morning we're going to find that the only thing that made a difference between these two men was God's sovereign grace. David and Saul in this situation are not unlike Peter and Judas. Judas betrayed his master, whom he didn't really love. The Gospels give us the impression that Judas was a two-faced opportunist. We read in the Gospels that he was the treasurer for the disciples. We also read that he was a thief, constantly dipping in the till. This gives us the impression that he he joined Jesus band of followers because he saw a potential cash cow in the miracle working teacher and when things continued to not go that way he threw in the towel on the whole racket and sold Jesus out to the Jews. Peter denied the master whom he did love. Peter was a sincere follower of Jesus. Peter actually whipped out a sword to behead the priest's servant when officers from the temple came to arrest Jesus. We know that Peter was impetuous. That isn't the trait of a fake or a hypocrite, that's the trait of someone who is sincere and zealous, but still young and immature. Peter had just looked Jesus in the face and swore that even if everyone else forsook him, he wouldn't. And then he turned around and denied that he even knew Jesus three times. And in that sense, Peter's sin was far more grievous. Saul, like Judas, wanted the true king of Israel killed. Saul tried to make arrangements with the devil. Judas sold his soul to the devil for 30 pieces of silver. Saul knew what was right and intentionally chose evil. Judas knew what was right and intentionally chose evil. Judas walked up to Jesus and greeted him with a kiss. In 1 Samuel 24, we read that Saul wept when he realized that David had spared his life. He apologized for persecuting David, only to turn around and betray that trust again and come after him, as we read in chapter 26. These parallels are not accidental. They're intentional. God intends us to see two men guilty of a very similar sin, one of whom perishes The other pardoned and restored to favor with God. In the lives of these two men, David and Saul, we see the reformed doctrine of grace. We see election and reprobation. David was eternally elect unto salvation, and we see it by the constant saving grace of God at work in his life. Saul was eternally reprobate unto damnation, and we see it by his lifelong walk, of ungodliness, disobedience, rebellion, self seeking, murder, and most convincingly, his constant persecution of David, whom he knew to be the Lord's anointed. Because David is a type of Christ, Saul showed himself to be the anti Christian enemy of King Jesus. And now I want to turn to the doctrine of grace, and as I believe you will see it, our text gives us a full-spectrum demonstration of it, and that is our outline, what is grace, number one, number two, who receives it, and number three, why them? What is grace? If I asked everyone in this room to define it, how many different definitions do you think we'd get? Well, the only definition that matters is God's. How does Scripture define it? Scripture defines grace as getting something good that you don't deserve. Grace is getting good in return for evil. God in His grace grants us eternal life, even though we have done nothing to merit it. We deserve hell, but we get heaven. We owed a debt that we could not pay, and He paid a debt that He did not owe. Grace is the action of God giving and Christians receiving the promise of eternal life united to Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Notice both parts of my previous definition are included in that statement. Grace is the gift of God. And it's not just the gift of pardon. It is also the gift of the ability to receive the gift. The meaning is this. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith is not of yourselves. It itself is the gift of God. And it is not of works lest anyone should boast. Now let's think for a minute about the predicament that man is in. Salvation requires the following repenting of one's sins providing full atonement for those sins and satisfying god's law in its entirety by perfect obedience repentance is not meritorious i mean if you've done wrong the very least you can do is be sorry and say so but our sinful nature guarantees that we will sin And that everything we do, even the things that aren't technically sins, will be tainted with sin. And so it's not just that we cannot obey God's law perfectly. We don't even want to. We wouldn't if we could. Loving and obeying God is completely contrary to our nature. You might as well tell a catfish to fly. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, the natural man, that is opposed to the spiritual man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Our catechism teaches us to admit that I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And the list of scriptures that the catechism provides as proof of that statement is as long as your arm among which are Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Genesis 6, 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In short, we need to do spiritual acts of faith, but we are carnal, without faith. And therefore, salvation is impossible for man. In Luke 18 and Matthew 19, the disciples ask Jesus, Who can be saved? And Jesus replies, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. When God calls Job on the carpet, he hits Job with a flurry of over 60 questions. Questions like, can you create worlds? Do you command the rain? Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? And after this barrage of rhetorical questions intended to show Job that he is not God, the Lord concludes by saying, if you can do any of the things I do, then I also will confess that your own right hand can save you. In other words, if you prove to God that you can thunder with a voice like His and thereby annul His judgment, then He'll admit that you've got what it takes to save your soul. This tells us plainly that if a man is to be saved at all, then everything involved in it must come directly and solely from the hand of God. Man has no share in it whatsoever. Didn't we read earlier? Not by works, lest any man should boast. That brings us to our second question. What is grace? Secondly, who receives it? In the contrast between David and Saul, we see the working of sovereign grace. David was the recipient of the grace of God. Saul wasn't This choice was God's choice made in eternity, and Scripture is unequivocal on this point. The only thing that made these men differ was God's free gift. Scripture is clear about this in many places. In Mark 3, verse 13, we read, And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Romans 9, 22 and 23 declares what if God wanting to show his wrath and make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. First Thessalonians 5 9 and 10 says God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. There is a distinction in those passages of Scripture. There are those whom Christ wants to save, whom He calls to Himself, and they come. And those He did not want to save, ergo He did not call to Himself, and thus they do not come. There are vessels of mercy who are appointed before creation unto glory, and there are vessels of wrath eternally prepared unto destruction. There are those whom God has not appointed unto wrath, which conversely means that there are those whom God has appointed unto wrath. David himself confirms this doctrine in many of the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 65, verse 4 declares, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you. And this is very much like Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you didn't receive? John the Baptist declares, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. So there's David and there's Saul. Both are sinners who deserve no mercy or help, but God's grace makes a distinction. And David is the unworthy recipient of grace, whereas Saul is the worthy recipient of destruction away from the presence of the Lord. I hope you can see this in our text. Let's look at David's predicament so that we can see how unspeakably wonderful the grace of God toward David is. Where is David? He's in Philistia, the land of God's enemies. Whose fault is that? His. The only way out of this is divine intervention. And can anyone argue that he deserves that? He's been living there for over a year. Whose fault is that? His. The only way out of that is divine intervention. Can anyone argue that he deserves that? He has become the chamberlain of Achish, the Philistine king of Gath. Whose fault is that? David's. The only way out of this is divine intervention, and can anyone argue that he deserves that? He's been lying about his military activities this whole time. Whose fault is that? His. The only way out of this is divine intervention. Can anyone argue that he deserves that? Now he's on the spot. He has to accompany his boss into battle against the church. Whose fault is that? His. The only way out of this is divine intervention. Can anyone argue that he deserves that? The battle in question is the one that scared Saul so much that he's gone and consulted with a witch. Whose fault is this again? David's. And the only way out of this is divine intervention. And can anyone argue that he deserves that? This is sin upon sin upon sin. And in every case, there is no one to blame but David. The only way out of this mess is divine intervention. And no one can honestly assert that he deserves that. Now, I pointed out some similarities between Saul and Judas Iscariot and between David and Peter. And I want to point out one more similarity between David and Peter. This sin of David's, that of seeking refuge among the Lord's enemies, he committed this sin three times. Not unlike Peter denying the Lord three times. The first time is in chapter 21. David fled to Gath and resorted to pretending to be insane so that he could escape. The second time, the prophet Gad explicitly rebuked David for hiding in Moab. In chapter 22, he said, Do not stay in the stronghold, but depart and go back to the land of Judah. The third time, he went to Gath, and he's hid here almost a year and a half. Now, in our minds, we think, he was hiding, he was on the run. And so we're ready to excuse his choice of hiding place. But there is something very important that we must see, and the best way to convey this is by David's own words. In 1 Samuel twenty-six, nineteen, David says, They, he means his enemies, have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. You see, the relationship between the land of Canaan and the worship of Jehovah was so close that to forsake Canaan was to forsake the worship of God. Driven me out from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord. Canaan was the inheritance. Worshiping and serving God outside of Canaan was impossible. To forsake the land of Canaan was to forsake the worship of God. So David, too, was guilty. Of denying his Lord three times. David is now stuck in moral quicksand. There is nothing he can do to extricate himself, and worst of all, he doesn't merit any help. He fully deserves to die in his sin, and as such, David is a picture of all God's elect children. We are conceived in sin, brought forth in iniquity. All our righteousnesses are like filthy, gory rags. God finds every one of His children naked and bare, wallowing in His own blood, as Scripture says in Ezekiel 16.6. God wonderfully protected David in our text. He was virtually compelled to join with the Philistines in fighting against God's church. You know, there were many decent men in the mainline denominations who were too afraid to raise their voices against the inrushing tide of theological liberalism. And because they refused to sever ties from the evildoers, they got shanghaied into the battle to destroy the church. They were made instruments of the rot and the decay. And they deserved such a fate. You can't just sleep with the enemy and walk away with clean hands. Proverbs 6, verse 27 says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? But David was spared this awful fate. God graciously rescued him. You'll recall that the Philistine kingdom was an association of five city-states. Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, Gaza, and Ekron. The only one of the Philistine kings who trusted David was the king of Gath. The other four were dead set against David going into battle with them. He's the one of whom they sang, Saul is slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Had David gone out with the Philistines, his name would have been irreparably damaged. It would have been the ultimate act of betrayal. There is no way he could have been Israel's king after this. No general who fought for the north could have been given command of southern troops, right? If he fought for the Philistines against Israel, he would have deserved to be hanged, not crowned. And so we see the sovereignty of God's grace. God had sworn that David would be king, and that David's greater son would be king over the church forever. And even though David had nearly destroyed his chances of returning to Israel with a clean reputation, God overruled everything, including the hearts of Philistine kings, so that David could leave on terms that didn't make either side different than what they really were. David left the Philistines known as a Hebrew, one whose alliance, allegiance, was to Israel and Israel's God and the Philistines left as the enemies of Israel and Israel's God. There's hardly a better example in Scripture of God overruling events than this. Proverbs 21.1 declares that the heart of the king is like an irrigation ditch in God's hand. He can direct the water flow anywhere he pleases. And the implication is that if God rules over kings, well, how much more over nobodies like you and me? Our third question then, why them? Why are they the recipients of God's grace? Why does God show grace to anyone? He does so because He wills to. There is nothing in the creature to call forth God's love. God wills to because He wills to. He calls Himself, I am that I am. And that alone is the answer Scripture gives us. If a potter can make a chamber pot and a flower vase from the same lump of clay, and the clay can't squawk about it, how much more can God design and destine His creatures? Sure, we're more than inanimate clay, but only finitely so, whereas God is infinitely more than a mere potter. God overrules all things for His purposes, and they are His purposes, not His reactions to the deeds of His creatures. I want you to notice that the events of our text Are normal events on the surface. Because we think of God's acts as, as miracles, where God's power overrides the rules of nature. But Scripture shows us that God's power is much greater than that. God literally rules over everything. Nothing comes to pass but by His sovereign decree. And let's define that term, decree. God's decree, according to Scripture, "...is His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass." God executes this degree by creation and by providence. I mean, obviously, in order to govern all things, all things must be there in the first place. And so we learn that God is sovereign over all things because He created all things. But God is not an absentee landlord. He created over all things and He governs all things right down to the movements of the smallest subatomic particle. Not one single particle or subparticle of matter falls outside of God's sovereign control. So when the Philistines think, you know, bringing the hero of our enemy into battle with us might not be the smartest strategy in the world, that doesn't have the field of miracle, and that's because it isn't. It is just a normal, mundane, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, everyday event. But even it is fully under God's power. God is governing it. God rules over everything, even His enemies, the Philistines. And He governs it all for the benefit of His church. All things must be subservient to my salvation. He will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. David has sinfully associated with God's enemies, but since David is God's dear son and a type of Christ at that, God graciously overrules the events before us in order to save David with his dignity, honor, and reputation intact. Neither David nor any other child of God deserves this. You remember Moses said, do not think in your heart because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, but that he may fulfill the word which the Lord spoke to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. You are a stiff necked people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord, your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. The Bible repeatedly equates sin with folly, and the Bible repeatedly declares that the fool hath said in his heart that there is no God. One of the greatest indicators of our native, atheistic, sinful folly is that we can easily read a story like this, a story that is in the Bible, God's Word, and not see God in it. We just see some scheming kings acting like scheming kings and we go, wow, what a lucky break. David got away by the skin of his teeth. He was so close to being forced into fighting his own people. What I have preached to you this morning is what we should see in such narratives. Remember some of the verses we read earlier? Who makes you differ from another and what do you have that you did not receive? A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Our story, together with last Sunday's text, shows us this biblical truth. From the level of pure human merit, David and Saul both deserved God's eternal wrath as sinners. But God's grace made a distinction. And that distinction was not based on anything in either man, but solely on God's sovereign decree. God made David differ from Saul. David received something that Saul didn't. David received something given to him from heaven. When we talk about the New Testament doctrines such as election and reprobation, it's easy for our eyes to glaze over as if we're just dealing with egg-headed speculations. That's why the Old Testament gives us stories. The narratives of the Old Testament demonstrate these doctrines with real-life examples. We can look at Saul and say, the Lord has made all things for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of destruction. And we can look at David and say, amazing grace that saved a wretch like him, like me. What is grace? It is unmerited favor. It is God's particular, saving, covenant love. Who receives this grace? God's elect, those whom He has eternally predestined to salvation. Why only them? Because God works all things according to the counsel of His will. He has mercy on whom He wills, and whom He wills, He hardens. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in Thy sight. Let us pray.